Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We've got something really interesting for you today. We are going to mash together World War One. With the ancient world. Lockie, tell people how, why, and who. I'm excited about this. I think it's going to be good. I've got my notes here ready to go because I'm, I'm going to be swatting on this for my battlefield touring when we can go again. Uh, we've got Owen Reese and Giles Penman uh, here. Owen's a historian of warfare uh, and the pre-modern world, so more generally. Uh, his specific research interest lies in the transition of soldiers from civilian life to the battlefield and back again, uh, including all the kind of psychological and sociological problems that arise from this. Uh, his books uh, include Great Battles of the Classical Greek World and Great Naval Battles of the Ancient Greek World, so boaty stuff too. Giles is a PhD student at Warwick University. He looks at ancient history and material culture. Uh, in particular, the deployment of Greco-Roman imagery on the civil cultural artefacts of the Great War and its post-war commemoration, which is pretty dapper. Um, so essentially what we're going to be looking at today is shades of the ancient world in commemoration of the Great War, which is something that, well, until Owen wrote this article uh, that I've been reading for, for the Great War group last year, I hadn't noticed, to be honest. <laughs> Um, as well absolutely 100% guilty do you know who else is guilty Alina because Owen's been on before talking about sociological uh, impact of war in the ancient world and she neglected to mention that you were an expert on boaty battles in the ancient <laughs> world you should have had a podcast on that by now the sly cow I'm gonna have her <coughs> on that one <laughs> she's evading the boatiness well everyone um everyone ignores uh ancient boats anyway there's no pannons there's no trafalgar so it barely exists to everyone else. Uh, well, uh, let her off. Well, well they do they do smash into well. each other though, which is a rugby player, player kind of appeals to me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do one. We're going to do boaty battles of the ancient world, and she's going to sit through it, and she's going to like it. That's going to be our punishment. Giles, hello. This is your first time on Hack. Welcome. Yes, uh, thank thank you for uh, for uh, 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 inviting me to speak. Now it's the uh, um, it's um, having a, a classical background as well um, means that I have a great appreciation for, for, for Owen's work. Uh, um, having studied classics uh, at, at university at undergraduate level and then uh, sort of moving on to more material and culture thereafter, uh, I've uh, um, has given me a great appreciation for how how very much the ancient world has has influenced subsequent centuries, um, including great, the Great War and its and its commemoration. So it's something that I've, uh, I really, uh, really do, do enjoy researching and, uh, something that, uh, I look forward to telling you more about. Awesome. I mean, I think we'll, we jump straight, straight into it then. I mean, um, Owen, one of the first things that we think about in terms of commemoration of the Great War is the cemeteries. Anyone who's been out there and seen the kind of rows of white headstones, those, those images do, um, stay with you. Uh, are we, um, do we want to say the ancient Greeks were the, among the first to move away from the concept of just leaving the dead on the battlefield? Yeah. So the uh, the ancient world is always um, it, it's a problem in all military action, isn't it? Which is um, we all focus on the hows, the whos, the wheres, the whys, and afterwards, the aftermath of battle is always political aftermath, it's personal aftermath, it's uh, psychological aftermath. So my own work. Um, or, you know, wider military campaigns. No one ever thinks of the physical, um, the physical aftermath, which is, what do you do with the dead? And um, there's always quite a lot of them. 
Mm. Um, it's not just the ancient world. Of course, this is any uh, um, issue in any military activity. You know, think of Waterloo and the bodies left on the battlefield. Yeah. You know, think of the Somme, which is obviously an obvious one. Um, it's a common problem. And for the Greeks, um, there was a real fear that your body would be left on the battlefield. If you were killed in battle, it would be left, and it would be left to the birds and the scavengers. This was a real insult and a threat you know, projected onto you. I mean, Homer's Iliad, this epic poem, possibly one of the first epic military engagements that we see, the opening line that people uh, may have heard of about the anger and the rage of Achilles, which is the famous bit of the opening line. The actual end of that first sentence talks about bodies on the battlefield and it talks about the threat of the dogs and the carrion birds eating your body because no one cared. No one uh, buried you. No one looked after you. This was a real fear in the psyche of the Greeks. Not unique to the Greeks, to be fair. You know, we hear Sumerian um, uh, monuments talk about burying the dead in some way. So whilst we're talking about uh, leaving bodies on the battlefield, there's all there's often been uh, a social drive to at least for a burial of some sort, usually to your own, not necessarily to the enemy. So in Greek warfare, this is where we are. The, uh, the concerns for the dead on the battlefield are a serious one. They are so serious in Greek warfare that victory in battle was not determined by who had more men die it was not determined by who actually held the battlefield necessarily who retreated necessarily it was determined by who controlled the bodies of the dead uh, a battle in ancient greece was kind of officially ended when a truce was called and the bodies were exchanged so you would give back the dead of the enemy Showing once again the kind of the prestige and also the um, care and the due diligence that was offered to even your enemy. Okay, we can kill you, we can strip your body of armor, we'll strip you of all your valuables, but we're not monsters. We'll give you back to be buried. So this is where we are. So most Greek um, city states in the classical period, fifth or century BC, they bury their dead on the battlefield. If they're in enemy territory and they've lost, uh, they may take it to a nearby allied territory to bury them, but it's always near to where they are. Okay. Um, there is kind of a logistical reason for this uh, also, which is that uh, it's very hard to move a lot of bodies. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to achieve. The human body is quite heavy. Uh, moving one is not easy. Moving 10 is particularly hard. Uh, if you're talking about 500, how on earth do you do it? in a pre-mechanized society. So they come up with this idea, bury on the battlefield. The Spartans, with this great military reputation they hold, they bury them on the battlefield. The Argives, the Corinthians, the Thebans, all these people bury them on the battlefield. One city-state that is missing from that normality is Athens. Uh, the sort of the radical democratic state of Athens are the first city-state, they're the first state of any description in Europe at least who make a very different decision. They decide that they are not going to continue burying the dead on the battlefield. They're going to bring them home in what we refer to as a repatriation of the dead. Now this repatriation of the dead was not only a huge logistical undertaking, they burnt the bodies on the battlefield. Uh, think about the amount of wood that would take, think about the amount of time that would take. The human body does not burn very easily. Um, you know, go talk to anyone who studies um, Nazi Germany and dealing with the horrors there. Burning bodies is not easy to achieve. Um, so Athens does this and they repatriate the bodies. They go further than that. They offer them a public spectacle, a public funeral for the war dead. Uh, in it, the, um, the remains are put into coffins, 10 specific coffins. Um, which are um, paraded through the streets and buried. Uh, it usually happens once a year, especially during the Peloponnesian War towards the end of the 5th century, where we have like over 20 odd years of continuous military engagement. So this is a lot of uh, investment by the state to repatriate and to honour the war dead um, in a way that actually feels very modern and uh, very relatable. 
you know, the state takes control of the dead, it offers them this, um, this prestigious funeral, a funeral that often it was only really available to the very rich, the rich people who are rich enough to bring back bodies, people who are rich enough to erect their own statues, their own monuments. Athens was offering this in almost a democratic way. We're going to give this to you, the everyman. Uh, we're going to give you this honour. Um, so in that way, yes, this is uh, Greece, ancient Greece, or specifically ancient Athens, is where we see a, um, a very distinctive in this relationship between the state and the war dead, and what to do with the dead on the battlefield. So after we've dealt with the dead, we get to the idea of war monuments, and this is something that wholly epitomises um, our work as battlefield guides, Lockie, uh, monuments, uh, cenotaphs, and the cenotaph in particular. Tell us, Owen, where do these ideas come from? Where does this idea come from of putting up a stone monument to your war dead and inscribing names on it? It comes from the ancient world, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it certainly does. Um, the Monuments that are erected in Athens for the war dead are what are referred to as casualties. So these are large stele, so um, stone um, erection, uh, erected uh, monuments, um, often with a beautiful sculpted image on top. So heavy investment goes into it and you list the war dead on a particular campaign or a particular year. Um, so this is where that kind of monumentalism comes in to the relationship with the war dead and the state. Cenotaphs. Now, cenotaphs are ever so slightly different. Mm -hmm. So a cenotaph in the ancient Greek world comes from the word kenotaphion, which literally uh, translates as empty tomb. So a cenotaph is an empty tomb, is what it is. Uh, it is uh, outside of Whitehall. That's what that represents. The one in Manchester, that's what this represents. It's exactly the same. An empty tomb is something in ancient Athens that wasn't a monument erected by the state. It was usually erected by your family. And they would erect it because they do not have your body. Hence, the tomb is empty. So we actually see this used um, in Athens for non-military death as well. The most famous example, or the most famous person that we know had a cenotaph, um, was uh, the tragedian Euripides. So Euripides died in Macedon, uh, allegedly, um, and we have surviving uh, inscription recorded um, at a much later date, the inscription that was on his cenotaph, um, because the family didn't have the body. So they erect the cenotaph so they have a place to go, have a ritual site where they can go and remember their family member. Um, and this is the tradition that we picked up um, at the end of the First World War, at a point where um, the British state in particular looking for guidance on how to commemorate, how to offer something to all these men who have died in a completely unprecedented period of warfare. Um, and they looked to the ancient past and they found in the original democracy, imperial democracy, boot, uh, they found the perfect um, model. Um, and the cenotaph was imitated on this, uh, on a, the joining of these two ideas. So the public funeral, the honour of the dead that Athens gave, and this Greek concept of the cenotaph. And if you actually go and look at the cenotaph in Whitehall, for instance, you will see it um, covered in uh, classical imagery and classical iconography. Think of it. Um, the classic would be the wreath, the circular wreath, um, which is common in Athenian and, dare I say, Roman um, iconography, because it's one of victory. Yeah. Um, we also see, uh, you know, Roman numerals and things like that, you know, all harking back to uh, a classical precedent. On the cenotaph in Manchester, this goes a step further. They have a wreath as well, but they also have two obelisks either side of the uh, the central. Uh, as it is. And these two obelisks, again, evoking the ancient world, obelisks associated with um, Egypt and in many ways Rome as well, um, they are uh, decorated with carved ribbons 
a drape along uh, the side of it. And this is straight out of classical Athenian pottery art. This is how Athenian uh, people, Athenian families in particular, would decorate the graves of their dead. This is the imagery that the, um, the British state, the political elite of Britain, are calling upon when they're trying to find a way of showing as much respect as they can to their dead. Um, and they call upon a language, uh, a, an iconographic language, that goes back two and a half thousand years. Do you think they do this because of the public school by education that they a lot of them have gone through? Giles is like, oh, oh. <laughs> is, is this part? Are they subconsciously doing it, or is it intentional, Giles? Uh, I, I would say that this is um, this is intentional, but the work of Elizabeth Van Diver and um, uh, and also uh, Edith Hall and Henry Stead have suggested that actually um, classical knowledge it was not um, the, just the preserve of the elite. Uh, whilst it was the elite led, led it in private schools and grammar schools, uh, working class people uh, were also imbued with uh, uh, cl- uh, with a great deal of of, of classical knowledge through uh, English translations. Um, and compendia and, uh, and, and, and condensations of, of classical texts and classical histories, uh, but also through, um, the, the, the use of, of, uh, neo, neoclassical sculpture as part of architecture in, in public buildings. And so, uh, whilst, um, whilst the, the elites may have, um, whether they be the artists or politicians with classical educations may have made these decisions, they were still making those decisions in the full knowledge that all sections of society would understand um, the the messages they were trying to promote about the war dead. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think that's an important point. So whilst, you know, whilst we focus on the elite and whilst we focus on decision-making going on, they are also, you're, uh, I completely agree with Giles, they're reflecting a, um, an idea that the public buy into. Don't forget that the Cenotaph of Whitehall was originally uh, made um, temporary um, and the massive queues that formed when it was uh, unveiled pretty much forced the hand of uh, of the decision makers, it pretty much forces the hand, we have to make this permanent because um, the people have spoken with their feet, um, it really did tap into something um, that they believed and I half wonder if this is also very similar to the Athenian idea so the Athenian idea as I said I'm going to give you a burial that is only usually given to the rich. I'm going to give you something that your um, normal standing in society does not afford you. Mm. Whereas something like the cenotaph, something like what was given to the soldiers in the First World War, uh, it was not normal. This is seriously uh, yeah. an honourable thing to be given. This is an amazing thing to be given for working class people to be offered such an amazing monument to themselves be buried, be given headstones, um, yeah. even if it is at the Somme, even if it is at Ypres, wherever it is, to be given those kind of monuments is not normal. No, it's a complete step up. You didn't see that at all with the Boer War, did you? Um, but I think I think part of part of the the desire to to create a um, um, a schema of commemoration in this way uh, is because of the the public outcry at the. Um, uh, the, the way in which the the the, the um, gravestones and cemeteries of the Boer War dead were mistreated and, and abandoned after the conflict, and, and indeed um, influenced to some extent by the, um, the the way in which after the American Civil War um, the the American public wished uh, for uh, for for their dead to be to be known and to be named. Uh, something that uh, um, uh, Thomas Thomas Lacker speaks about a lot um, in his work on the on subject of naming uh, uh, the naming the dead that that actually there is uh, this great drive to, in the uh, in the, the end of the uh, the 19th century uh, towards uh, um, the uh, formalized commemoration of war dead yeah lucky it's um also it's got to be part of the uproar about not bringing people home from the western front mm. because we couldn't afford to. And the Americans got the option. We didn't, did we? Because it cost so much money. It was decided to leave them where they'd fallen in France and Belgium. But 
in doing that, you've then got to put a significant amount of funding and respect behind it, haven't you? Well, yeah, absolutely. And it goes it goes beyond just the kind of physical um, remains of the, the soldiers as well. And it's fine where you do have those physical remains and you can erect a headstone or something like that. But just the nature of the fighting in the Great War, you know, with, with artillery being such a powerful element on the battlefield, it's quite often that there's very little... To, to to find the person or, or, or it's very very difficult to identify and so we end up with these huge memorials like the one at Tietvel like the Menin Gate with literally you know tens of thousands of names on many many thousands missing on the battlefield now in the same year that the, the, the Cenotaph was unveiled on Whitehall in its kind of permanent form we also had the Unknown Warrior um, brought and, and installed in Westminster Abbey is that is that a, a feature from the ancient world as well? Uh, yeah, it actually is. Now, this is a, a feature that's kind of underappreciated. Um, so if you, there is a lot of scholarship on the, what we call reception. I mean, Giles and I are both talking about, we're talking about the reception of the ancient world in other time periods for this conversation, the First World War. Um, by reception, we mean basically, how does another culture receive the ancient world themselves? How do they interpret it? What do they do with it? Um, so, you know, I've talked about the um, the Athenian funeral, I've talked about the kind of iconography on show, um, and Giles has talked more about that, no doubt. So this is a reception of the ancient world. So it's not an accurate portrayal of the ancient world. It is another culture using the ancient world as it wants. Um, and there's loads of work on this to do with um, the casualty lists, to do with the, the monuments of the war dead, but there's nothing on the burial of the unknown warrior. This is particularly interesting because the supposed originator of the idea, Reverend David Railton, was himself trained in classics at um, Macclesfield Grammar School um, and before he went into uh, training to be a, a reverend. Um, he has a good background in uh, Greek and Latin. Um, and anyone who's had to study Greek has had to suffer reading Thucydides, who is the man who gives us this um, funeral Source. <laughs> source. Although I really enjoyed Thucydides when I studied at A level, but I, I suppose uh, suffering it is is perhaps a bit harsh. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I am afraid that makes you deviant. You are a deviant <laughs> person. <laughs> um, wow, I, I've met one. That's impressive. Um, I, to be fair, I have to use Thucydides a lot. I like his work. God, his Greek is hard, and it's just ah, intense. Um, yeah. But. So David Relton absolutely yeah. will have read um, the funeral oration that is most famous in Thucydides. This is the funeral oration, the speech that was given by the um, statesman Pericles over the war dead. It's the only speech given in Thucydides for this funeral. Um, and it is so iconic. It is constantly reused by politicians into the modern day. Snippets of the speech appears at things like Gettysburg Address. It appears at you know, um, numerous American presidents have used sentiments from this speech. It, um, it speaks to freedom, it speaks to democracy, and it speaks to civic duty. Okay. The one area that people don't really focus on is the small little logistical bit at the beginning where he talks, as I mentioned earlier, about the funeral itself. Right. So the war dead are cremated on the battlefield. Those cremains are put in coffins, Ten coffins, there are ten tribes of Athens in your tribal. They are buried. What is also buried with those coffins is an empty bed, specifically an empty funeral bed. This is dressed for funeral rites. What this bed is emulating is, a, is what would happen in a house if you died at home. The family would uh, create a funeral bed, they would dress you, they would wash you, they would prepare you for funeral. This is the funeral bed they are emulating. And uh, the suggestion is, although Thucydides isn't completely clear, the suggestion is that that bed may well have been buried as well with the war dead. So you've got to ask the question, why on earth is an empty bed being buried along with the remains? And Thucydides tells us it's for those that can't be found or could not be identified. Now, you mentioned earlier about modern warfare and the issue of um, artillery and the issue of basically 
the things like the RAF and the Second World War and, you know, the issues of collecting all the remains. The ancient world doesn't quite have that problem. They have a, another problem, which is that the majority of bodies that are lost in a naval battle are not easily retrieved. Um, and then when you realise that Athens is predominantly a naval power and that they exert their force through their naval activity, a lot of their deaths are at sea. So it's intriguingly, this bed seems to predominantly be there for those bodies that could not be returned. Um, and the obvious what there is those lost at sea. These are um, the many men who would have died in the naval campaigns that allowed Athens to have the empire it had, the empire that it needed to afford this funeral, among other things. Um, so they bury this. Now, what we have here is a symbolic burial for those that cannot be returned. This is the complete ideological underpinning to the burial of the unknown warrior and the cenotaph. So the cenotaph gives you a monument for those that cannot be returned, which in the First World War is everyone, predominantly. Um, and then you have the burial of one person, a symbolic burial of one person, unknown, for all those who could not be buried at home, for all those who are missing, for all those who do not get the rights that the state believe they do deserve. And as you've already said, they can't afford to give. Um, and for me, that is just such an obvious echo of the Athenian practice. There's just such an obvious emulation of the ideology of the burial of the bed um, at that public funeral. So uh, whilst it is not categorically proven that David Relton was emulating, um, it is at least worth noting that the underpinnings to both those ceremonies are the same and all the same reason. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right. I mean, that's that's absolutely fascinating. I love these ties and and just pushing the conversation on to kind of maybe more personal tokens um, of you know, remembrance or service. Um, we quite often think of the medals, be they campaign medals, service medals, victory medals. Uh, and Giles, just turning on to you, because you're, you're into this, aren't you, medals? Where do yeah. these fit in? Yes, so um, the, um, whilst I began my, my uh, PhD research by looking at military medals, I've, I've more moved into uh, the commemorative medals um, of, of the war. But um, uh, so those that commemorate Peace Day in 1919, but um, certainly uh, military medals um, um, function, functioned um, for um, for the, the men themselves and and for the, re- the relatives of those that died as as almost uh, um, personal memorials to to their service uh, and to. Uh, um, um, and to uh, the memory of uh, of the life of the person who died, um, so they they have that 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 dual function, remembering both the military aspect of service, but also the per uh, the person um, that they represent, um, person whose service they represent, and, and they can be quite important for um, 
for the the commemoration and remembrance of of of, of uh, relatives who served in conflict for for the family, um, um, because uh, by being produced by the state, they they form part of the official recognition of uh, of that service, um, and, and and so. Um, um, so, so certainly that they are they are they are important for um for families and for family history going down down the generations um it is one is one reason why they become heirlooms and why uh why families today still still have them in their possession um but um but for, for me uh, it's um it's the uh, um the greco roman imagery on some of these the smaller smaller personal items of the uh, um of, of the First World War that are, that are, are significant, um, they, um, but by not depicting the, the the warfare warfare modern warfare as it took place during the conflict with with the bombs and the bullets and the barbed wire, um, but instead replacing them with a, a classical aesthetic, um, it, um, it it sanitizes the uh, the war of its horror. And removes it from, uh, and uh, by removing it from its immediate 20th century com- context and setting it in, in, into an ancient past. Um, and so it makes it seem as though the conflict happened, uh, centuries ago, uh, far out of reach of, of the, um, of, of, of the, the emotions of the, um, the, the, the relatives who, uh, and, and, and servicemen, um, who all went through the war in one way or another, uh, whether that be losing a, losing a relative who served or losing friends to uh, along alongside whom they served. Um, so the so um, um, classicism took on this this cleaning aspect. It cleaned the war and, and made it easier to to come to terms with the, with those difficult emotions. Um, but also because it it, it creates this. Um, this image, image of, uh, of, of ancient legendary experience, um, th- through the, through the use of, of Greco-Roman imagery, it presents the, the war dead as, as heroes almost. They are, um, they are soldiers, uh, and sailors and airmen who, whose service was akin to, um, to that of Roman legionaries who, uh, who uh, processed uh, in, in triumph after great military victories at the, at the end of campaigns, or, or, or like uh, or, or like Greek warriors who uh, uh, who had gone through through battle and then had been given um, given great honour by the state, or 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 Sealy or, or cenotaphs if they had died. Um, and, and so, um, in that way, they provide con- the classical imagery provides consolation for the bereaved and for fellow servicemen as well. Um, and, and those are the two, two strands, um, of, uh, um, of purpose that I, that I'm, I'm, that, that I, I study. Is it winged victory, the actual imagery of the medals? Is that? Uh, yes, that, that is, um, that is what appears on the, on the victory medal. And, um, and, and again, that, that provides a, um, a, a similar type of, of, um, of co- consolatory imagery to, to the servicemen themselves that because, uh, victory appears to be, um, to be, uh, awarding a, a wreath, a, uh, um, a laurel wreath, which is a, uh, a, a, an ancient victory prize given to, uh, um, to, 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 particularly to, uh, ancient, ancient Roman legionaries after, after the battle, um, um, and, and, and after long, after long, long and hard campaigns, it's, um, it's a symbol that they, that the men during the First World War are worthy of similar, um, plaudits, worthy of similar honours. Um, and it's, so it's a way of consoling them that despite the hardships they suffered, um, they are, um, they are indeed, uh, worthy of great praise. So um, I'm, I'm now, I'm now thinking about where else we might see, um, ancient imagery in respect to first world war objects and we've got we've got memorials we've got medals are there are there any others yes that there are so um that there is the uh on the printed media of the great war so posters and sketches um and um 
and uh, discharge certificates, you'll find um, images of of Britannia, who is the um, the uh, uh, ancient uh, personification of the British nation, um, originally created by the Romans in the first century AD after uh, after the, the Roman conquest of of Britain. Um, and, and and this um this figure then became a uh, a prominent um representation of the british nation from the renaissance onwards um through her depiction in architecture but particularly on coinage where it, even today she, britannia appears on the 50 pence piece but uh, she appeared on on the uh, the bronze coinage of uh, every every monarch since the uh, late 17th century uh, onwards and so uh, r- really became um solidified as, as a symbol representing the nation and uh, during the great war uh, on printed media um britannia is is heavily used um by um by the government on, on government sponsored posters to mobilize the nation um whether that be mobilizing them to um to join up in very traditionally gendered um roles so men men were encouraged through the use of britannia um to Join the fighting services, uh, rather, so competent services rather than non-competent services. And women were encouraged to join uniformed services, um, in which, um, they engaged in traditionally, gen- traditionally female gendered activities, um, a- a- aiding fighting for the, the fighting men through supply and logistics and, and nursing. Um, but also Britannia was used to, um, to encourage civilians on the uh, on the home front to uh, save bread and become teetotal uh, to not to 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 uh, abstain from alcohol um, as as part of uh, the broader um, pledge by politicians uh, and religious leaders at the time to reduce alcohol consumption uh, it, within Britain to boost productivity, um, whether it be in 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 the factories or or elsewhere, um, and. Um, I, I argue as part of my research that um, the use of Britannia's image um, was actually unsuccessful in, in, in achieving these aims because um, of the reality of the war. Um, the, the reality is that um, working class people were able to earn enough money um, to, to, um, to earn more money, in fact, than they did before the war uh, through war work and, and thus were able to afford um, f- food, uh, uh, more, more food, and so they didn't need to save bread. And then government regulation meant that people couldn't couldn't really obtain high strength alcohol um, when the pubs were open. So Britannia's image didn't really have an effect um, on on trying to patriotically encourage people to to drink less because government regulation meant they couldn't anyway. Talking about um, people's reactions, then are you right. saying that they're yeah. kind of um ambivalent towards this ancient imagery that's being used in some cases? I, I, I would say so. I, I, I would say that um, it may have patri- it may have encouraged people, some citizens, to act patriotically, but um, in a broad sense, yes, they, they did become ambivalent because um, they, the, the, this image, the image of Britannia had been so heavily used in British society that it, it kind of ceased to have a potency. Um, it ceased to, to have a power. It was used on all, on all, on a lot of the bronze coinage at the time, and then archi- then in architecture as well. And if you're seeing it every day on the posters, it just eventually it just ceases to have the same sort of meaning. But also that the harsh reality of the war meant that um, um, that the image that this image ceased to have a mobilizing force. Um, so as stories came back from the Western Front about um, um, about the death and destruction on the battlefield, um, the recru- recruiting numbers f- fell dramatically, requiring conscription, and, uh, and um, there, there was nothing that uh, Britannia's image on on uh, posters um, could do to prevent that. However much the British government wished to pre- present uh, um, combatant warfare as a patriotic duty for every. Right thinking, right, for every right thinking British person, that, that, that was just, uh, there was just no way that, 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 uh, that could, um, could trump the, the, the reality of the conflict, that it was just, it was just being present, it was just, uh, a, a real slaughter. 
Um, although, of course, statistically that, that wasn't the case. Uh, only about one in six frontline soldiers actually was killed. But the present, the presentation of the reality, um, um, and, and indeed the harsh reality of living conditions as well on the front meant that it just wasn't going to happen. Just got me thinking there, Giles, about, um, you know, the changing mm. relationship with the ancient world as the reality kind of hits. I mean, the obvious one for mm. me is, um, the one perception of the ancient world most people will know if, even if they don't necessarily know it, which is the, um, the, the phrase Dolce et Oromes Pro Patria Mori, um, yes. made famous of by Wilfredo's poem. Um, yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. So from the uh, Horace, the reason why I say that is that you say that to most people now, they'll immediately go to the war poetry, mm. like Blackadder's endless poetry. Um, and mm. they immediately go, oh, you know, that's the irony in that statement, you know, the idea that there is nothing sweeter or more fitting than to die for one's country. Oh, kind of, yeah. Fatherland is, of course, steeped in irony and the, the horrors of the war um, kind of show that. And yet, if you go and look at quite a few of the war memorials around the country, they have part of that phrase quoted. Mm. And, you you know, when they were first erected, this is the idea, you know, they die for their fatherland. Let's go to the ancient world. The ancient world tells us this is a great thing. And yet when we start to get, you know, the, the proper aftermath of the war, you know, what is it? Mm. Wilfred Owen's poems published 1920, I think it is? Uh, 1920, yes. Yeah. So you've got this... um evolving relationship with the ancient world and actually now that phrase has lost the meaning that the war memorials wanted it to have and in in many ways has created a more poignant monument now because uh, it has yeah. that sense of irony um, and indeed this is something that the okay. secret Go on, you. Uh, sorry uh, and indeed that's something that secret for secret soon um comments upon in uh his poem uh men in gate um he he's um He's he's very clear that uh, that he does that he disapproves of the, the classical aesthetic being used to represent the war because it, it doesn't to his mind it doesn't represent anything that the war um, the the war was about um, it doesn't it doesn't represent that the fighting as it happened or indeed any of the sentiments that the soldiers feel about it. I, I'm so glad you two are up on your poetry because Lockie and I are like Ooh, war poetry. In uh, in classics, classic ignorance of it. You've got to do a bit of poetry. You've got to do a bit of poetry. Well, I mean, a lot of the words to do with commemoration were, you know, had some of the great wordsmiths of the day involved in. I mean, Rudyard Kipling is famously involved in, in a lot of this. So, I mean, you go to a cemetery, you'll see with the Stone of Remembrance, you know, designed by... Uh, was it, uh, that's Blomfield who who designed that, isn't it? And and the, the words on there are, uh, their name liveth forevermore. And then you have uh, on some of the some of the headstones which have been maybe hit by shellfire, and we're not sure where the grave is in the cemetery. Their glory shall not be blotted out. Uh, and these kind of these expressions, which then you know you tie into the to the oration. If you go to the last uh, uh, post in Eep, um, you'll hear. Uh, they shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. So this idea of, I, I, I mean, the, the words follow the concept of the immortal dead, um, mm. uh, don't they? And and so let's talk about that for a second, Owen, if you don't mind. The, the, its connotations with the with the ancient world. Yeah, so you, you've always got to ask the question when a, when a society does something out of the, you, out of the ordinary, it's because it's worth doing. Um, no other state in the ancient world is, in the ancient European world at least, is doing anything like a repatriation process. Why are they doing it? What is going on? So it's often this repatriation is aligned with democratic ideology. It's often how it's explained. So you've got this new democracy. You're trying to convince people to go to war. Whenever you want to go to war, uh, Athens is a, is a radical democracy. It is a completely direct democracy. So the people who vote to go to war are the people who are going to do the killing and the dying. They are the same people. So you've got to, as a state, as a, uh, a so, as a society, you've got to offer them something. Um, and when you look into the Word smithery, as you kind of point out, um, of the funeral orations, you notice that the one thing that keeps coming up is what the dead get offered. What the dead get offered are uh, kind of manifold. One is they get to become heroes 
Well, I mean that in a very colloquial sense, but I also mean that within a Greek religious sense. So a hero is actually more than just someone you look up to. Hero is, uh, you know, deserves a place next to uh, other divine uh, entities, such as, I mean, at the very top end, the gods, obviously. Um, so, you know, the heroes are like Hercules, Perseus, Theseus, all these great names we know from mythology. They had religious cults dedicated to them, had sacrifices given to them. They were called upon, they were prayed to. They are part of this kind of wider Greek uh, religious sphere. And this is what's on offer to the war dead. So if you die in war, you have this funeral. And during this funeral, you are transformed as a group to become a heroic entity uh, who can be called upon and who has honours and who have athletic games in your name and things like that. So there's a real sense of what's given to you. But um, because of that, something else that's on offer is immortality. Now, immortality to the Greeks uh, is literally um, not dying. But of course you are dead. How are you going to not die if you're already dead? But what they offer is uh, your immortality, which becomes a heroic entity, is your memory and the memory of your deeds. This is what we hear time and time again. You will be remembered. Your memory will be immortal. Um, and our annual commemoration to the war dead will continue your immortal existence. So this is what the Athenians offer. And of course, this has obvious echoes in um, modern commemoration of the war dead. Um, I mean, you mentioned a few there, you know, it is the undying memory. It's quite a common thing you read about. Um, the ageless dead, because of course, they will no longer grow any older. Um, you know, they will never be forgotten. There is a, a sense of um, infinite commemoration being presented. Um, and it is it was important to the Athenians that this was what was being offered to them, because otherwise you've got to think of it in terms of motivation. How do you motivate these men to go to war? How do you motivate them to vote to go to war if they know that if they die, that's it, gone, gone, nothing else? So it's perhaps not a surprise that next to this ideological foundation of the war debt and this promise of uh, immortality through memory, Athens also has a system of um, payment to war orphans. And there's a suggestion that they may well also have assisted widows in some way. So there is a very realistic, um, practical offer of, you know, we will look after your family. The society will look after your family. Your children will grow up. Um, and at 18, a war orphan is given a full set of uh, military armour and weaponry by the Athenian state. Of course, the underlying idea being is you're now going to replace your dad. And that's exactly what the speech is saying. Um, there's quite a horrific moment where Pericles calls upon the families at the funeral and basically says, women, shut up, stop crying and go have more babies. Um, if you're too old to have more babies, don't worry, you've done your job. Men, stop crying. You know, you now need to go and try and emulate your amazing ancestor or your amazing brother. And if you haven't, you haven't quite lived up to the masculine ideal, but it's okay. So, you know, this is all about motivating. This is all about the state motivating um, men, women, children to continue what they need them to do, which is to produce more uh, warriors. Basically, um, there's a really nasty imperial underpinning to this democratic ideology. Uh, which is easy to ignore. Um, I, I think uh, I, I think I, I, I just like to say that that uh, it's that same idea of of uh, of, of immortality um, that I think the memorial plaque, which is given to um, to the, the families of those that died after the First World War, that tr- um, um, the, the, the plaque is trying to emulate that same idea of immortality with uh, Britannia g- giving giving a wreath um, out a, a wreath of um, of, of laurel um, uh, 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 over over the top of the, the the name of the person who's commemorated. So it's it's 
almost as though Britannia, i.e. the nation, the British nation, is trying to uh, confer that same sense of immortality and, and heroism on, on, onto the deceased um, in, in that very, very personal um, uh, memorial, uh, which which was designed to be uh, um, um, displayed in, in, in the home. So it's uh, uh, trying trying to uh, uh, trying to provide uh, a, a sort of more more personal um, counterpart to the, the public uh, memorials. Um, so so uh, I, I would say that the, the classics uh, and classical imagery is is very uh, is very significant for both um, the uh, the, the, the mobilization during the war and uh, and indeed uh, um, as Owen has stated, the commemoration after it. Right, thank you so much for coming on to give us some kind of insight into what links all of your ancient stuff with all of mine and Lockie's World War One stuff, because evidently it is a lot. And as he said earlier, it's just like something that just passes us by every single day without us really considering it. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having thank me. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great 